as we're starting out chapter 2, we spent last week looking at the fundamental issue of why Paul wrote this letter to the Colossians. One of the main reasons why Paul wrote to the church in Colossae was to help them avoid falling into heresy. If you study the book of Colossians and you read some commentaries on it, it's called the Colossian heresy. This false teaching isn't described for us in detail, but rather in bits and pieces, which is really what this false teaching is. It's bits and pieces of other religions and philosophical thought combined together with bits and pieces of Christianity. See, there was this vocal group that was mixing the works of Judaism with the principles of Greek philosophical Gnosticism and adding in just enough Christianity to cause a major issue. The churches in Colossae and then the sister churches in Laodicea and Hierapolis. See, works plus worship of angels and mystical experiences plus Jesus being far less than God plus the only way to understand all of this was through their secret knowledge. This is the Colossian heresy. These false teachers were teaching that they had the knowledge, the secret knowledge to understand the truth. The only way to know the truth was to know their confidential information. By the way, avoid anybody who teaches that they have the secret knowledge to anything, let alone spiritual truth. Any church, any person, any group that says they alone possess the secret knowledge of God. And after you become one of them, then they'll let you in on the secret. They're only out to control you and manipulate. The teaching that we do here at Poland Village Baptist Church is the same teaching that Bible-believing churches have been teaching for nearly two millennia. Multiple millions of Volumes of books and schools all over the world and thousands and tens of thousands of theologians. There is no secret knowledge here. None. There is nothing new at Poland Village Baptist Church. Now, it's often new to us because we're just learning it. But we preach and teach the very same gospel. Christ crucified. That has been the clarion call of the church from its very first day. As a matter of fact, the goal of the true church has always been to make known the truth to as many people as possible, as clearly and as completely as possible. Our doctrine is literally an open book taken directly from the Bible. We saw last week that Paul's ultimate response to the Colossian heresy is teaching who Jesus is. And what Jesus did. The answer to all false teaching comes down to the truth about Jesus. Once we've settled who Jesus is, that he is our Lord and Savior, that he has authority in our lives, his word, his teaching, his plan become our pursuit. Knowing the truth about Jesus not only provides us a real relationship with God, but it also protects us from falling prey to the false teachers of our day. There's another very important part of protection against false teaching, and that's each other. We're here to help each other, to teach and admonish one another, to guide one another into the truth. Today we're going to look at five marks of a maturing church. So if you're not there already, please open your Bibles to Colossians chapter 2 and follow along as I read verses 1 through 5. 
For I, Paul, want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all those who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith. Father, we pray now that these words, your word, would be what the Holy Spirit uses to challenge us and change us on this day. Amen. Paul is sharing his heart with believers in Colossae. This words he wrote to them, they're kind words, they're intimate words, they're caring words. Paul says in verse 1 that he had not seen them face to face. He had never been to Colossae. He had never taught in their church. Even though he had never seen these believers face to face, that didn't keep him from loving them, from ministering to them, encouraging them. We see his love and his care and his ministry to them throughout this passage in Colossians. If you look back to verse 24, we see that Paul says he's rejoicing in his sufferings for their sake. Paul is saying that if my sufferings is what it takes for Christ to be known in you, then I will gladly suffer for you. What commitment, what words of love. He says in verse 25 that he was called into the ministry by God for them. So that they could know more fully the word of God. So that they would know the riches of the glory of Jesus Christ. Christ in you. The hope of glory. In verse 28 he tells his priorities in ministry. He proclaimed Christ. He warned and taught everyone with all wisdom. And ordered that he might present to God everyone mature in Christ. Paul's goal was to see all people. Everyone that he taught to grow to maturity in Christ. Paul wanted all of his spiritual children to grow to be strong, mature believers, knowing Christ, knowing his word, and living it all out to the glory of God. Ephesians 4, 12 through 16 so powerfully describes for us his goal and his mission and his passion. And so should it be our goal, our mission, our passion of every leader, of every minister, of every member in our church. Paul said he wanted to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves, carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are all grown up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, the whole church, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. When each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up. In love. See, this passage is the heartbeat of Paul's ministry. 
This passage is the heartbeat of why we are here this morning. This passage is the heartbeat of my ministry to equip all of us for the work of the ministry, to build up the church, the body of Christ, until we all, all, every one of us, attain to the unity of faith and a knowledge of Jesus Christ, to maturity, grown up, living lives, and the knowledge with the full measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Don't you want to be so maturing in Christ that you're growing up to live and to know the full measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Growing to be mature, a fully developed, a seasoned veteran, a complete believer, complete in Christ. Not bound to immaturity, not bound to inexperience, not bound to spiritual naivete, being tossed around, Back and forth by waves, carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. See, maturing in Christ not only leads to a life of rich fulfillment, but maturing in Christ is also one of the greatest protections against following false teaching, against falling prey to human cunning, deceitful schemes. Paul, back in our passage in verse 28 and 29, says that he toils, he labors, struggling with all Christ's energy to present everyone mature in Christ. His goal in ministry, our goal in ministry, his priority, our priority, maturity in Christ for you, maturity in Christ for me, maturity in Christ for each one of us. That's one of the very main biblical purposes for church. So in light of Paul's mission to present everyone mature in Christ as one of the very protections against false teachers, he lists off several marks of maturity within the context of a maturing church that moves believers on to live and to know the full measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. The first mark of a maturing church is agonizing in prayer, Paul says in verse one, for I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you. Now, Paul had never seen them. He only knows them through Epaphras and what Epaphras has told him. So what's his great struggle for them? We know that Paul is actually in prison now as he's writing. So how is he struggling for them? The word struggle, which is the same word he uses in, in uh, verse twenty nine, is the Greek word agon. Where we get our English word Agony. The idea here is not an external struggle, but an inward agony, an agony of the heart and of the soul. Paul had his eyes open to the presence and the appeal of false teaching. And he was concerned that the Colossians not have their eyes closed to the reality. I believe this intense inner struggle, what he agonized for on behalf of the believers in Colossae, was agonizing in prayer. And we get that from Colossians chapter 4, verse 12, where Paul says this of Epaphras. He says, Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers. There's the word, same word, always struggling, agonizing, on your behalf in his prayers, 
that you might stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. The word struggle, Paul used to describe Epaphras' prayer in verse 12, is the exact same word Paul used to describe his struggle in verse 1. What Paul is describing that Epaphras is doing is what he is doing. Epaphras is always struggling on their behalf in his prayers that the Colossian believers would stand mature, full of the will of God. Paul's ministry is always struggling on behalf of the Colossians believers in his prayers to present them mature in Christ. So what's the great struggle for them? He is struggling. He is agonizing in prayer for them. In Romans 15.30, Paul uses the same word again in connection to prayer, saying, I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit to strive together with me in your prayers. To God on my behalf. Paul was urging the believers in Rome to strive, to struggle, to agonize in their prayers for him. Now, we don't often use these kind of words to describe our praying. To struggle, to strive, to agonize in prayer. Now, you don't hear people saying to one another, I'm struggling to pray for you. It doesn't sound like a positive thing. But in all honesty, there's a lot of truth there. Because prayer is hard work. Having a disciplined prayer life is not an easy thing at all. It takes a lot of struggle. It takes a lot of striving and a lot of agonizing to develop a consistent prayer life. One of the things that's important to me in the honesty of my prayer life is that when I say, I'm praying for you, that means I'm praying for you. We say phrases like, you're in my thoughts and prayers, or, or when someone is ill or discouraged, we like to say, I'll pray for you. Many times I suspect that, that those phrases simply mean we care for you. Simply as a way of identifying to them and try, with them and trying to encourage them. How many times have you said, I will pray for you, and forgot to ever pray for the person? It's not that you had ill will towards a person. It's not that you were being dishonest because we all know that praying is hard. It is not easy. It takes a lot of struggle, striving, agonizing to cultivate a real significant prayer life. Perhaps if we embrace the fact that praying is struggling, we'd be better equipped to actually face the struggle and strive to pray more. It was Epaphras' love for God and his love for his fellow believers in his church that motivated him to struggle, to strive, to agonize for them in prayer. Sometimes I think what's so important about prayer is what we often miss. We almost exclusively see prayer as petition, asking God to do something for someone or for ourselves. But the majority of our prayers should actually be asking God to do what he wants to do for someone else or ourselves. See, this quote from Martin Luther has helped reshape my prayer life in significant ways over the past few years. Prayer is not overcoming God's reluctance, but laying a hold of God's willingness. If you take notes, there it is. There's the sentence. Write it down. Prayer is not overcoming God's reluctance, but laying a hold 
of God's willingness. See, prayer is not asking God to do what he wasn't planning on doing. And somehow, as we pray, God thinks to himself, wow, now that's a neat idea. I think I'm going to do that. Prayer is not aligning God's will to our will. No, prayer is asking God to do what he already wants to do. Prayer is aligning his will and our will to his. Prayer is getting our thoughts allied with his plan. We struggle in prayer not for us to get God to do what we want, but for God to get us to do what he wants. And that's why it's not easy. That's why prayer is hard. It's a struggle to not only have a consistent prayer life, but it's a struggle to make our prayers about what God wants first, his priorities, rather than just what we want. We pray not to overcome God's reluctance. We pray laying a hold of God's willingness. Perhaps our struggle to pray would be more successful if we sought to pray what God wanted first. A maturing church is a church that fully engages in the struggle of prayer. Here's a good challenge. Here's a good application. Write out three things that God wants. Write out three things that God wants for you. Three things God wants for your family. That God wants for your children. That God wants for your church. And pray those things. You see, the next three aspects of a maturing church are the details of Paul's prayer are actually three things that God wants in his church. Part of God's plan for us to avoid being deceived by false teachers is to be connected to a caring, learning church community. These three aspects build off of each other. Their encouraged hearts are to be knit together in love, which brings about a growing understanding of Jesus in which are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Verse 2 says his struggle, his prayer was that their hearts may be encouraged. To be encouraged means to comfort someone or to cheer them up or to strengthen someone or to counsel someone. The idea here within the context of this letter has more to do with strengthening or counseling their hearts, not so much comfort from a sadness. We use the word heart regularly to express the seat of our emotions. We say things like, I love you with all of my heart. When the word heart is used in the Bible, it refers to more than that. It refers to the whole core of our being. It refers not only to our emotions, but also to our will and to our decisions. In the Bible, you think with your heart and you feel. In your heart. What Paul is saying here, what his prayer for them is, is that they would be strengthened in the core of their being, in the place where they make decisions and their will, that the whole direction of their life, their thoughts, their decisions, their emotions will be reinforced and strengthened. They needed their heart strengthened to equip them to stand strong against the error that they faced. You know, it's always helpful for me to understand what it means to encourage, what this word encourage means, or encourage your heart, is remember that this is the exact word that is used to describe the Holy Spirit. In John chapter 14, verses 25 and 26, it says, These things I have spoken to you while I am with you, but the Helper, there's the word, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things, And bring to your remembrance all things 
that I said to you. It's a very colorful word that's used here to describe the Holy Spirit as the helper. Perhaps your translation says the comforter. Perhaps your translation says the counselor or the advocate. It's a beautiful, powerful word. As the Holy Spirit comes alongside of us, he comes to help us. He comes to counsel us. He comes to encourage us. He comes to strengthen us. And so are we to do that to others. Jesus told Peter in Luke twenty-two thirty-two to strengthen your brothers. In Acts 15, 32, it says that Silas and Judas encouraged the brethren. In Acts 15, 41, it says that Paul went through Syria and Sicilia, strengthening the churches. And in 1 Thessalonians 3, 2, it says that Paul sent Timothy to them to encourage their faith. One of the most important ways that we can serve one another as a church is to encourage one another. To come alongside of them and to strengthen them and to counsel them, to help them, to comfort one another. Would you describe yourself as a person who strengthens other people? Would you describe yourself as a person who encourages the church? Is this process of strengthening each other's hearts that we are more able to stand the schemes of false teachers? A maturing church is a church that encourages your heart. And encourages heart leads to being knit together in love. Mutually encouraged hearts lead to unity. And unity leads to strength. Being knit together, being bound together as one, makes the church strong. Have you ever looked at a piece of rope? Have you ever examined, cut apart a piece of rope? Rope is not just like one strand of nylon or one strand of cotton. No, rope is the twisting together of many small strands. And the more strands, the tighter the weave, the stronger the rope. See, one strand of a rope is easy to break. But when all those strands are braided together, that rope becomes incredibly strong. See, that's the picture of what's going on here. Strengthening and encouraging one another knits us together, braids us together, intertwines us together so that we are stronger together. As individual strands, we're not very strong at all. But weaved together, we can have incredible strength. Ecclesiastes 4.12 puts this truth this way. And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. Imagine us as a church, a hundred and twenty plus cord intertwined together, not easily broken. See, false teaching is naturally divisive. The goal of a false teacher is to try to deceive the isolated strand, the person that's left out, the weak, the vulnerable. One of the greatest ways to avoid false teaching is to stay intertwined, knitted together with your fellow believers. Together, we are stronger, much stronger. What do we knit together in? What does the passage say? What do we knit together in? We're knit together in love. Mutual love for one another is the binding agent of unity. 
loyalty and support and encouragement, when that fills the church, unity and strength are the outcome. Makes you think of Jesus' words from John chapter 13, where he said, A new commandment I give you, that you love one another. As I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Folks, these aren't just spiritual words, you know, that you hear in a sermon. These are the very words, the very truth that we as a church need to live out. We all want to be part of a church that encourages hearts and is knit together in love. How are you helping to build the strength of our unity through love? Are you lost? Are you an individual strand out there? Well, then come join us. Intertwine with us. And not only will you be encouraged in your heart, not only will you be knitted together in love, but you will find a strength to stand against the false teaching of our day. A maturing church is a church that is being knit together, intertwined together. In love. When we're strengthened in heart, when we're united in love, it will help us grow in our understanding of Christ. The goal of encouraged lives, of being knitted together in love, is to reach deeper into Christ, to understand Him more fully. Church is supposed to be a loving, a united, and a learning community focused on Jesus. I basically spent all of last week's sermon on this truth that in Jesus and in him alone is everything we need for life, everything that we need for eternal life, and everything that we need for an abundant life. The one most ultimate truth that destroys their arguments, that exposes their false philosophy, that obliterates their own reasonings is Jesus Christ himself. For in him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. To know him more fully equips us to see and avoid the false teachings of our day. One commentator wrote, when you ask what is a Christian, it is one for whom Christ is life. Christ is our life. We have no other life. We have nothing but Christ and we have everything in Christ. The Colossians had been told that there that there was a lot more needed than just Jesus Christ. Something beyond Christ was necessary. It is this presumed insufficiency in Christ that prompts the Apostle Paul to to write these words in chapter 2. The false teachers say that insufficiencies in Christ can be made up by philosophy and human reasonings. The false teachers say the insufficiency of Christ can be made up by legalism and ceremony and ritual and externalism. Or the insufficiency of Christ can be made up by mysticism or, or can be made up by asceticism, some effort at self-denial. These, the Colossians were told, they will make up for what lacks in Jesus Christ. Christ is not enough, they were told. This was a long time ago, but nothing has really changed. There are people today who are shouting from the top of their lungs, Christ is not enough. You need more than him. You need more than all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge that are found in him. 
You need Christ plus. Well, hear this and hear this clearly. Christ plus anything equals heresy. Got it? Jesus plus anything is heresy. While Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. The greatest answer to their argument is Jesus. The greatest response to their philosophy is Jesus. The greatest wisdom to their reasoning is Christ, the person, the one, Jesus Christ. Is Jesus the authority of your life? A maturing church is a church that is growing in their knowledge of Christ and becoming more like him. A maturing church is a church with the driven passion to know Jesus, to serve Jesus, to share Jesus. A maturing church is a church about one person, the one, Jesus Christ. See, believers who link themselves with fellow believers, who encourage and love one another, and who grow in their understanding of Jesus Christ, will stand strong, will stand clear, will stand together against the schemes of false teachers. In verse 5, we see that Paul gives the church in Colossae a word of encouragement. He rejoices. He rejoices to see their good order and firmness of their faith in Christ. The bad news for the Colossians is that they're under attack by false teachers. But the good news is, is that they are standing strong. Paul was delighted to see that this church, this fellowship of believers, were standing strong in their faith in Christ. You know, that word uh, for order and for firmness are military terms. Order refers to a line of soldiers drawn up for battle. And firmness is a word that's used to talk about the strength, the solidarity of their formation. This military metaphor paints a picture of the Colossians not breaking rank or defecting. When the enemy attacks, the Colossians have maintained a solid front. There's no breach in their order. They stand ready, strong, to handle the attack firm in their faith in Christ. We all know that the enemy attacks churches. But we all know that it's rarely this full-on frontal attack, right? It usually comes as some kind of diversion. It comes with some kind of flanking move, going after our defense with deception and creating within the church personal agendas. It usually starts when the, the church doesn't encourage and strengthen each other's hearts, which then leads to disunity and a lack of love, which then puts Jesus and his word in the backseat as personal preferences and self-focused agendas take the leadership. Then comes division in the ranks. Then comes weakness and faith in Christ. Then comes defeat of the church. See, false teachers and enemy forces want to tear us down from the inside out. So we all must stay vigilant. We all must stay exalting Jesus Christ as our head, serving one another with love and humility, all the while strengthening our faith and our unity in Christ. How do we combat false teaching and the schemes of our world around us? Together. That's how we do it. Together as a unified body of Christ A maturing church is a church that is standing together strong in their faith. 
Well, after an accident in which she lost her arm, a girl named Jamie refused to go to school or to church for a very long time. Finally, the young teen thought she could face her peers. In preparation, her mother called her Sunday school teacher and asked that, that he not call attention to Jamie. The teacher promised, but, but then he got sick on that Sunday and had to call in a substitute who didn't know anything about Jamie. At the conclusion of the lesson for that day, which was about inviting friends to church, the sub led the class into doing that hand motions to that familiar children's poem. Here's the church. Here's the steeple. Open the door. See all the people. Well, little Jamie's eyes filled with tears. Thirteen-year-old boy realized how she was feeling. He knelt beside her. And with one hand apiece, they supported each other, making the church and the steeple and the people. Together, they illustrated what real church is. See, real church isn't about you and what you want. Real church isn't about me and what I want. Real church is us together, focused on what Jesus wants. Real church agonizes in prayer for each other. Real church encourages each other's heart. Real church is being knit together, intertwined together in love. Real church is growing in our knowledge and our dependence on Christ. Real church is together. Together. Strong. Standing. In the faith. Real church is our church. Passionately focused on Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we come to you now with this simple prayer request. We want to be a real church. We want to be a church with a singular mission and focus. The glory of Jesus Christ, to know him, to serve him, to share him. We want to be a church that's humbly serving and loving one another. We want to be a church where personal agendas and self-focused interests are squashed. We want to be a church where together is better, where together is strength and unity. Lord, I pray for us that we might be that church. And I pray for us individually. It will take seriously each of our responsibilities to be used of you to make it happen. In Jesus' name, amen.